All right, psychology nerds, welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of the psychology department at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the psychology program here and host of the podcast Psych and Stuff. And I have some amazing guests today who are going to talk with us all about schizophrenia and specifically what is going on in the brain. We will get to them in a moment, but first... I want you to get involved in the Psychology and Stuff conversation. Please go to the f- and find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Psychology and Stuff. On Facebook, it's Psychology and Stuff. On Twitter, it's Psych and Stuff. Great things there about the show, but also psychology more generally. Plus, we take requests. So if you want to hear about a topic, what's, uh, that's a good way to let us know. And speaking of requests, I want you to call and leave a message for us with a question, idea for the show, or just a thought. And you can do that by calling 920-328-5167. If it's really good, we'll play it in the next episode. That number again is 920-328-5167. I also want to say that we're now available on Stitcher along with the other great Phoenix Studio podcasts. So if you use the Stitcher app, you can find us there. Thank you, Stitcher. So big news. We have a couple of live episodes coming up. Now, one of those was just at the Brown County Library. By the time this episode comes out, you've missed it. But you have a second chance because we've got another awesome episode coming up on Wednesday, October 17th at 6 o'clock p.m. We're going to be talking scary movies at the Widener Center uh, this is part of a Phoenix Studios podcast festival that night, uh, so you'll get uh, live episodes of Psychology and Stuff, All the Rage, Indented, Serious Fun, Bird in the Wings, and more. And that brings us to our guest today. He's a regular on the podcast, having been on episodes related to the brain. He's also going to be in our live episode in a couple days, uh, or a couple weeks, I should say. My brain guy, Dr. Jason Cowell. How's it going, Jason? It's going awesome. It's great to be here. Excited yeah. to talk. Thank you for coming in. This is something I've been really excited. And you have with you uh, our other guest, who is a student of yours. She's a psychology major and human bio major. Um, She's in her third year here at UW-Green Bay. Allison Klein. How's it going, Allison? It's going. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. So when it comes to – so I teach a course called Abnormal Psych. You both know this. Um, and one of the things people are often asking me is, is wanting to talk about schizophrenia and specifically what's going on in the brain. And so that's what we're going to unpack today. But before we do, I thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about what schizophrenia is. So we're all on the same page. I think if there's a disorder out there that is often misunderstood, it's probably this one, right? People get it confused with uh, dissociative identity disorder, otherwise known mm-hmm. as multiple personality disorder. Um, and so when we're talking about schizophrenia, we're really talking about someone who's experiencing a, a couple different types of symptoms, largely uh, symptoms like hallucinations, delusions, disorganized speech, disorganized behavior, uh, and various types of what they call negative symptoms, like uh, so flat affect um, uh, and, and other sorts of, of, of symptoms. So that's really what we're talking about. And, uh, and because so much of this disorder is related to thought, I thought it was, it's important to kind of unpack a little bit what's going on in the brain. So tell me, what's going on in the brain? Yeah, let me, let me jump in for a second first, and then we'll okay. get rolling with this. Um, one of the, the crazy things about all of these disorders, so uh, clinical mental health disorders across the board, is that in the last 10 years, there's been a huge push to start to try to understand the biology that might underlie or complement parts of these um, disorders. Schizophrenia has been one of the first and most studied uh, disorders out there. 
And what's really interesting is that those negative and positive symptoms that you just mentioned actually might rely on slightly different uh, neural perturbations that are happening across development. And uh, that's something that we're going to get into. Uh, part of the reason that I actually have a student with me, Ali Klein, is that she did an independent study here at UWGB last semester specifically looking at uh, developmental psychopathology and schizophrenia. So trying to look at pathways in child development that could lead to schizophrenic diagnoses by uh, late adolescence and early adulthood, and specifically looking at the neural underpinnings that could relate to that. And so I thought this was a great opportunity to get on. And so, yeah. Allie, why don't you start taking over? What's, <laughs> uh, what do we know about schizophrenia? And I'll jump in as we go. All right. Um, well, I guess the definition of it, it's a neurological or mental disorder where reality is interpreted abnormally. So kind of like what we said about the positive and negative symptoms, positive being things that are present in schizophrenic patients that we wish weren't, so hallucinations, catatonic behavior, and delusions, and negative being things that are not present that should be, whereas the slurred speech, um, apathy, ir irritability, and suspiciousness or so social withdrawal. Ellen Sachs is a professor and lawyer, and she is actually diagnosed with schizophrenia, and she describes it as having your brain being shattered, where things that should be connected just aren't, and um, things just aren't working as they should. No, and I think that's a, a definition that people have used at various times, right, this idea of, and I think that's actually where some of the misunderstanding uh, of yes. this and dissociative identity come mm -hmm. from, um, this notion that there's like a splitting that occurs, mm -hmm. you know, and because that's a way of describing shattered, right, which mm -hmm. leaves people with that impression. But I think that's where some of that misunderstanding comes from. Yeah, and actually that's not the case at all in right. schizophrenia, which is, <laughs> right. uh, it's, it's actually more similar to several other disorders that we'll, we'll talk a little Good. bit about, like bipolarity or um, potentially even aspects of autism spectrum disorder mirror some of the symptoms of schizophrenia yeah. at times. Yeah, let's, uh, let's quick define hallucinations and delusions for yeah. people, because I think these are two terms that, that are sometimes mixed up. Hallucinations, not so much, right? Um, this is people typically know like what sort of inaccurate sensory experiences are, um, seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that aren't there, voices usually, uh, things like that. Delusions though, a little more complicated. Do one of you want to tackle uh, delusions? Yeah, I will jump in a little bit. Uh, so delusions are, are thought to be disordered thought, uh, meaning the, the addition is not that you're um, in this case, perceiving things that aren't present. That would be hallucinations. Delusions are about um, abnormal thoughts that you're having about uh, the one that everyone thinks of as delusions of grandeur. And delusions of grandeur are uh, abnormal thoughts about your status in society and the importance of your own aspects. Uh, and there are a whole host of different delusions that happen, but they're thought to be cognitive symptoms. They're thought to be extra aspects of cognition that shouldn't be present. So mm -hmm. these are mental uh, cognitions that are happening that um, instead of perceptions that are happening uh, that right. are, add to the baseline. Yep. And you mentioned the, the probably one of the main types. The other big type, which I think uh, is also part of the misunderstanding here, is delusions of persecution, right? This idea that someone is after you, um, which is where I think so often the phrase, um, you know, paranoid schizophrenia comes from. That used yes. to be a subtype of schizophrenia. It isn't anymore. Um, but this notion of, of um, paranoia um, comes from this idea that people often believe there's someone after them. But these can be thoughts of um, delusions of control, 
um, delusions uh, where where or delusions of reference where you think maybe people are putting thoughts in your head or withdrawing those thoughts from, from your head and things like that. So, and I think to real quick go back to something you said earlier, Jason, yeah. about um, you know this is one of the most studied. Um, I think, by and large, the reason for that is that this is one of the most disruptive disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Mental Disorders, right? This is one that I think largely um, having this disorder can really lead to significant problems in relationships, in work life, in a host of other things. Um, And so it's getting a lot of, I think, deserved attention uh, in the research. It's also arguably something that's... uh present in so many films incorrectly in most yes. cases but <laughs> yes. it's it's something that I, I would say most people are just fascinated by mm-hmm. this this complete disorder that does seem to uh, affect all aspects of life and so right. that's where we get at it um, one of the weird things about schizophrenia is that it usually isn't diagnosed until much later in life so uh, I think it's about 19 to early 20s is is the common diagnosis ages And that, for a long time, uh, was one of the big questions, which is, is this just suddenly happening in late adolescence or early adulthood? Are there some kind of experiences happening in adolescence that are changing this? Or is this something that might have been present for a long time and just kind of percolating beneath the surface the the entire time? And that really is kind of the way that uh, Allie and I tried to approach this was from that long-term developmental perspective. There's quite a bit of interesting evidence about early effects that might yield uh, increased likelihood of schizophrenia. So I don't know, Allie, if you want to jump in and talk a bit about those. Yeah, so specifically we talked about the gene by environment theory, and that's kind of just how genetic susceptibility along with environmental factors causes an outcome, um, or could uh, cause outcomes, I guess. Um, So it all kind of starts with genetic susceptibility. You see in schizophrenia and a lot of um, other affective disorders that there's a really strong genetic link. Like in schizophrenia, there's about 62 first-level gender familiarity. So that's like parents and siblings. Um, That's 62%. Typically, if one has schizophrenia, another one does. And in twins, it's 80 to 85%. And so that's just very scary. But then... So typically there's a genetic marker as well. So in schizophrenia, there's the COMP gene, which is considered a candidate gene. And um, that just kind of hones in on that there's a genetic link to schizophrenia. And this genetic marker can cause hypoxic states in in utero and also can cause severe synaptic pruning in adolescence. And this is where we see a lot of the structural differences, or this is how we see a lot of the structural differences in schizophrenia. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I want to define that for mm-hmm. our listeners. Both, uh, I think you use the phrase hypoxic state, mm-hmm. if we could define that, but also the pruning piece. Yeah. And let me actually jump back one step just to make a clarification as we move forward, which is an interesting piece that we have to be aware of when we're talking about mental disorders is that most of them have some level of genetic heritability. So that's uh, differences that are present between individuals and the likelihood of them being diagnosed with this are partially Uh, due to genetic kinds of inheritance, but rarely do you find an actual disorder that has a one-to-one relationship. There's not a a particular gene that differences on only that gene will cause you to have schizophrenia or cause you to have depression or cause you to have, um, you know, generalized anxiety disorder. In all of these cases, um, 
autism is a great example, or autism spectrum disorder is a great example of this. There's over 300 candidate genes that some differences present in uh, the allele combinations you have will yield uh, a higher susceptibility to certain environmental inputs. And so that's that G by E part that Ali was just talking about, which is the important piece on G by E is that the, your genetic inheritance is providing susceptibility. It's making you more sensitive to certain environmental inputs early on. But if you don't have those environmental inputs or the lack of environment, then what happens is you never tend to develop these things. So it's a complex aspect of both what you're bringing in genetically coupled with what you experience environmentally. That's where synaptic pruning starts to yes. become really important, is that the way that synaptic pruning usually works um, well, actually, Allie, why don't you jump in and tell us about <laughs> synaptic pruning? Um, so synaptic pruning, um, if you, I guess there's a saying that if you don't use it, you lose it. And so a lot of um, synapses where information is being from one is being transferred from one neuron to another, um, the gap in between those two neurons is a synapse. And so if those neurons, those synapses aren't being using being used, they get rid of them, basically. And this can be very detrimental to the individual because, um, I mean, this is where a lot of synaptic pruning is happening in the prefrontal and frontal lobes, and that's where a lot of the behaviors that you see in schizophrenia, like um, higher thinking or executive function, like um, disorganized, disorganized thought, thought yeah, yeah that kind of stuff, like that could all be caused or causal from the synaptic pruning. And so also synaptic pruning, you see that in adolescence. A lot of times schizophrenia is like Dr. Kyle said, is seen or diagnosed in young adults, early adulthood, but you can see synaptic pruning in children. And so it's just showing that it's a developmental yeah. disorder. And different, different areas of the brain have different uh, time courses where they go through the building of lots of synapses. So lots of communication between the different neurons are building during certain periods of development. But then, if you don't use them, you lose them, just as Ali said. So what happens is the experiences that you do have, it's called experience-dependent brain development, the experiences that you do have end up pruning off the kinds of synapses that you're not using anymore so that you have a level of efficiency in the brain. You also then start to myelinate, so you make more efficient uh, by having certain fatty sheaths that surround the axons to make for better neural communication. <laughs> um, you have those uh, start to provide additional efficiency. These periods differ widely, and one of the interesting things that Ali was getting at here is that across adolescence is actually one of the periods where we think there's a lot of uh, neural refinement happening, uh, particularly between the prefrontal and parietal lobes and the, co the connections between those two. And those seem to be where we start to see some potential differences when we're talking about schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think that, uh, that Dr. Martin had mentioned was something about... Yeah, call me Ryan. It's, it's I'll go with Ryan. All right. So <laughs> the other thing that Ryan had mentioned uh, was a hypoxic state. So what's a hypoxic state? Um, a hypoxic state is a lack of oxygen in parts of the brain, parts of a neuron, which could kind of lead to apoptosis, which is like cell death. Yeah. So one of the, one of the early things that we think about when you're, you're talking about worries when someone isn't having circulation is, uh, are you yielding a situation in the brain where there isn't enough oxygen to keep cells alive? Uh, and so when we're talking about brain death or potential other issues like that, uh, that is a situation where you're not providing enough oxygen to the brain and it yields cell death. 
So in the case of this, uh, there are some arguments that actually in utero, there may be potential hypoxic states in some individuals mm-hmm. who uh, develop schizophrenia later. So what are the things that are causing that? I mean, what, what's... So, yeah, this is like, this could be... It's, cause, a, great, it's a great yeah, question. It's right. a great question across so the board. So there's theories about this is where the environmental factors take place. So um, there's a lot of studies out there that mothers in the third trimester, if they moved or had, like, extreme stress, um, I think one of the examples was in a war zone, a mother in a war zone, these can lead to the mother being in severe stress, and this could lead to some of the hypoxic states we see in utero? We know it's this complex aspect uh, in utero where there are protections in place to try to help reduce the amount of uh, stress hormones like cortisol or epinephrine that are getting across the blood-brain barrier or across the placental barrier to the fetus, but at the same time, some aspects of the mother's system are getting across. And one of the things that we know well is that heavy, stressful environments tend to lead to abnormal brain development in the child, uh, both during the fetal stage, but also post uh, birth. So in in, uh, young infants, they tend to show different structural development across a lot of areas of the brain. And the thing is, this doesn't just lead to schizophrenia. This is actually associated with a host of different potential psychopathologies later. So, so one of the things we consistently find when it comes to schizophrenia is a link between, the, well, essentially that the highest risk groups are low socioeconomic status. Yeah. Is yeah. it fair to assume that that is the, the stress piece playing its role? Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's what we think is the link, which mm-hmm. is uh, there have been several uh, slightly more sociological studies, so larger picture studies that have looked at uh, schizophrenia and how often it occurs, and it is exactly that. It's linked. There are higher rates of it in uh, lower uh, SES, socioeconomic status or poverty-type situations, and it's thought to potentially just be related to the amount of stress that an individual is, mm-hmm. is having in everyday life. Part of that might be be due to the growth of the hippocampus and to areas uh, connected to the hippocampus. And we look at this in slightly different models. So it's not as related to schizophrenia as it is to PTSD and to other aspects where we can study children who have been maltreated or children who were raised in Romanian orphanages. What you tend to see is their ability to regulate the stress hormones in their body is extremely limited. And part of that is thought to be due that if you're constantly exposed to stressful situations early on, there are certain neurons within your hippocampus that send signals to stop your body from producing cortisol, to stop it from constantly staying in this um, alerted state. And those are actually killed off by the presence of lots of cortisol because of overexcitability. And so as you're killing off these neurons, the exact neurons you need to be able to regulate cortisol later, what happens is you have abnormal stress regulation mm-hmm. later in life, and that's thought to be part of the link towards most of the anxiety-type disorders following early life stress. Right. So I'm going to ask another, and it's possible you all don't know the answer to this. Maybe nobody does. But I'm curious because one of the things we know is that if you're low SES, you are also more likely to be exposed to environmental toxins, right? Because yeah. you're, you live closer to the highway, you, you're less likely to have clean drinking water, and, and so on and so on. And so is, is there any reason to assume or to believe that that may be playing a role as well? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I know there have been a couple of studies trying to look uh, widespread again at either polluted water or I believe it was um, 
some of the early drugs uh, that are administered to mothers. They tried to, to link some of these, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know what the actual results of those are. Okay. Uh, so that's all. I wish right. I had an answer yeah. for you. There. <laughs> Food for thought, but it's because I mean I think we've seen some research related to you know the last time you were on the show we talked about autism, yeah. and I think we have seen some research about air pollution as mm. a as a predictor there. And so I wasn't I was curious to know. Yeah, absolutely. That's so uh, it's it's a little more linked to things uh, like autism spectrum disorders. There there we get a little bit more of a, not a one to one link, but a little bit more right. of, a, of of a relation. And schizophrenia because. It is a drastic disorder, but the prevalence rates are not particularly right. high. It's hard to get a large enough sample to actually look at this right. statistically. Yep. Um, one of the interesting things, though, is by 19 to 20, you do see substantially different neural patterns. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we may want to touch on here, which yeah. is what does the brain look like <coughs> of a young adult who does get diagnosed with schizophrenia? I don't know. Allie, if you want to jump in. Sure. So kind of like what we said we um there's cellular disorganization in the hippocampal area which could be linked to the slur disorganized speech um there's asymmetries in the temporal lobes um there's also excess ventricular space um and this is also linked to bipolar disorder so there are some similarities to other um disorders as well um but because this ventricular space is taking up more room it has to take that from somewhere else, and that typically comes from the prefrontal and frontal areas. And so, and kind of like what we said before, in adolescence, there's decreasing connectivity in the prefrontal cortex, and then by adulthood, you see a decreased volume in the prefrontal and frontal lobes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about the ventricle, because this is <coughs> this is one of two things that I really wanted to touch on today. Absolutely, yeah. um, one of them is the the oversized ventricles essentially you know this is a, this consistent finding is talked about in every textbook and you know often with the same exact picture which is a, a healthy uh, brain next to a, a brain of someone with schizophrenia and you see these the, the much larger ventricles probably two three times the size um, talk to me about what the ventricles are yeah. and, uh, and and how that might be relevant let me let me jump in here because this is this is something that uh, 200 years ago in neuroscience, as, as the field was getting rolling, about 150 years ago, as the field was getting rolling, a lot of theorists thought, hey, it's the ventricles that yield everything about behavior, everything about thought. It's these ventricles. Now, if you, if you don't know your neuroanatomy, that's fine. The ventricles are actually just gaps. They're big holes in the brain that hold your cerebral spinal fluid. So they're, they're kind of just holders of fluid. There's not actually anything going on in them. What's really interesting about them is that the space that they take up is directly proportional to the density and the amount of other areas that surround them. And so that's what the big difference in schizophrenia is. Yes, the ventricles are larger, absolutely. It's a consistent finding that on a structural level has been around for, boy, I think that one's about 30 years old now. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the schizophrenia findings basically, what they did was took... uh, particularly severe cases of schizophrenia, brought them into a functional neuroimaging machine, so a magnetic resonance imager, and they looked at structural scans of the brain. So they just looked at what the brain looks like. So nothing about what it's doing, nothing about where the blood is flowing, just what does it look like, like a big old x-ray. And they specifically looked at the ventricles, and they said, all right, let's measure the size of these ventricles and compare them to people who don't have schizophrenia people who haven't been diagnosed, people who don't fall on the spectrum at all. And so they look at both of them and they go, okay, these have, I 
believe it's several millimeters larger, the ventricles at least, in the average individual that has schizophrenia. And that, that brought up a lot of theories. Why is this? Uh, what's it taking from? But that's the big question, is not that the ventricles are larger. It's what is smaller because the ventricles are larger. And that's where we get into uh, being able to explain some of these cognitive uh, issues that happen in schizophrenia mm -hmm. and potentially some of the uh, hallucinations in different aspects. Mm -hmm. And so Ali unpacked a lot of this neural aspect. One of the things she said in passing was that we see differences, particularly in the frontal lobe, because of these large ventricles. So the enlarged ventricles seem to be taking away from the density and the connectivity of the frontal lobe. That seems to be a process that's happening across adolescence. And it seems like these frontal lobes are critically important for so much of what we're talking about here. So what does my frontal lobe do? Let's start there. Yeah. And, and why is it bad if it's smaller, I guess? Um. I get like executive functions, so like judgment calls, um, impulse control, um, just a lot of like higher thinking stuff. The the common analogy is that your frontal lobe, and particularly your prefrontal cortex. So your frontal lobe is actually made of both your prefrontal cortex and your um, your motor cortex, your primary motor cortex, which forms the back of the frontal lobe. What we're really concerned with here is the prefrontal cortex. And, and this is the part right behind the forehead. This is the part right, right above your eyebrows, right behind that. So it's yep. sitting right on your forehead area, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and your prefrontal cortex is really involved. Uh, we use the analogy of a CEO. It's the CEO of your brain. So it's taking in all of the information from all of the other systems. It works with these. It integrates uh, senses coming in from multiple aspects, information you have from memory, and comes out with some kind of conclusion and sends off commands to a lot of the rest of the body. That's a simplified gotcha. variant of it, but that's how we like to think about the prefrontal cortex is as the CEO, making the decisions, sending off the decisions. Gotcha. The problem is just having a smaller prefrontal cortex doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, there are many people who can get by with smaller amygdala, smaller hippocampi, smaller uh, prefrontal cortices, and as long as they're well connected and there's a lot of synapses going on uh, where they can communicate with other areas, it can be just as efficient. What we notice here though is it's not just the size is smaller, it's the connections that they're having to other things are at issue here. And by not having as many connections and not having as many efficient connections, in some cases there's arguments that it's connected to areas that we wouldn't want it to be as connected to. Um, and those are overly efficient. What we get is potentially this constellation of at least a lot of the cognitive deficits that might be happening in schizophrenia. Very nice. Thank you very much. Yeah. What else you got for me? I've got one other question I want to ask, but I, but I just want to hear what else uh, you came with. Similarities between autism and schizophrenia and the similarities between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Okay. Um, and then kind of how you get one versus the other, which yeah. Dr. Cowell wanted to talk about. Yeah. So between autism spectrum disorder and schizophrenia, they're both defined as developmental disorders. Um, so they kind of start in adolescence and work their way to um, adulthood. They both have patients that have a lack of apathy or wait, is it just apathy? Just apathy. Just apathy. Yeah. Apathy okay. is the lack. Apathy is the lack of emotion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, social withdrawal and candidate gene, it, like we talked about. Um, but then autism spectrum disorder is typically diagnosed between ages three to four, and symptoms are apparent by 12 to 18 months, um, whereas schizophrenia is diagnosed in males between 19 and 23 and females 21 to 23. 
Um, and then similarities between schizophrenia and bipolar are irritability, insomnia, structural similarities in the ventricular size, dysregulation of the brain. Um, but then bipolar disorder is typically diagnosed by teen to 25 and sometimes diagnosed in older children. So I guess just we kind of at the end of the last semester, we kind of talked about how you get one versus the other. Yeah. Type of stuff. And this is an interesting piece that I think is going to lend into where I think you're going with your question, Ryan. Uh, but one of the key pieces to to taking a developmental perspective on, on clinical disorders is these two concepts called equifinality and multifinality. So equifinality means you can arrive at the exact same outcome from a whole lot of different potential inputs. And that's part of what we see in schizophrenia is that this constellation of symptoms that you see in adulthood could actually have been yielded by many different potential pathways. Multifinality is the other side. That's saying one type of early experience can actually yield a host of different long-term disorders. So this is that idea of early life poverty and stress could yield PTSD, could yield uh, generalized anxiety disorder, could yield chronic depression could yield schizophrenia. And so it's this idea that even though we can study the early stress, there's a whole host of, there's multiple final endpoints, so multi-finality as we're going through this. Uh, and that kind of links, well, I don't know, what was your question? And then I'll see if I, I'll see if I predict well, this right. Uh, so I was actually wondering about uh, the, the dopamine hypothesis, yeah. right? This, this, another thing that is written about in every abnormal psych textbook. Yes. It's also a super relevance to the treatment of, uh, of psychotic disorders. Yeah. Um, uh, and I also really quick wanted to point out too, one of the things we haven't talked about is that the, schizophrenia is actually only one of the psychotic disorders in the yes. DSM. There's actually quite a few. Um, but they, and I think this feeds into what you were saying about there's lots of sort of directions you can go with these risks because there's also delusional disorder, there's yes. schizophreniform yes. disorder, there's brief psychotic, there's schizoaffective, um, quite a few um, other psychotic disorders, but they're all very similar with regard to symptoms. Yes. Um, so, but, but back to, I guess, the dopamine piece. You know, also written about in every textbook, also, you know, something that goes back for a very long time and yeah. relevant to the treatment. Can, what can you tell me about dopamine? Yeah, this is this is one of the cool part. Well, cool, in my opinion, parts of schizophrenia <laughs> is that um, part of why the dopamine hypothesis. So the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia is that there might be. Uh, too much or too efficient processing of dopamine in certain networks of the brain, and that might be yielding particularly the positive symptoms of schizophrenia. So hallucinations are the main one that you can get to uh, from having excess dopamine. It's also one of the first treatments oftentimes are to get rid of what are called dopamine agonists, and dopamine agonists are things like coffee, uh, which can actually increase how well you can process uh, certain aspects of, of dopamine in the brain. Yes. Yeah, Can you real quick just define dopamine for, for our listeners? Yeah, what dopamine is, is just a, it, it, sorry, yes, absolutely. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. So uh, dopamine is a particular type of neurotransmitter that uh, is, these are the chemicals that sit in the synapse and help to uh, allow for communication between the different neurons. Uh, dopamine is one of these types, so serotonin, so right. several other ones that we would talk yeah. about, acetylcholine and whatnot. Yeah. And so, like, serotonin is what is modified, or not modified, but what is addressed through, like, antidepressants and things like that, typically. Yes. And, so and most antipsychotics work on dopaminergic pathways, so they are working on dopamine within the brain, uh, mm -hmm. trying to at least get rid of uh, hallucinations. Part of why we think dopamine is 
part of is is a piece of this hallucination. This is actually off of uh, individuals with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So the drugs in Parkinson's are oftentimes dopamine uh, types of agonists that help with dopamine uh, processing. And what happens is one of the side effects of Parkinson's drugs is sometimes hallucinations. And that gave insight into this concept that, well, hey, if we give a dopamine, if we give a drug that uh, reduces dopaminergic activity in certain pathways in the brain, we tend to get rid of hallucinations and schizophrenia. Coupled with in Parkinson's, if we give a drug that increases dopamine production, you get increased hallucinations, it's this concept that we might be, in this case, from multiple different pathways getting towards the same basic outcome, so an equal final piece, which is hallucinations as a symptom. That's really what's driven the dopamine hypothesis. It also has driven the psychopharmacological approaches to treating schizophrenia, which is uh, if you're going to give drugs, you give something that reduces dopamine uh, aspects in the brain. Mm -hmm. You also tend to pair that with something that reduces serotonin aspects in the brain to try to get rid of some of the negative symptoms of uh, schizophrenia as well. It's been something that's, that's gone on for quite a while. The, it's that combination of the two drugs that tends to help. Um, there, there may be more advanced ways to think about the dopamine hypothesis, though. So it does seem like this is operating off of um, reward pathways in the brain particularly, and it seems like uh, those are certain pathways that deal with uh, emotional aspects coupled with top-down functioning. So that CEO that I was talking about from the prefrontal cortex, it seems like uh, dopamine is very active in these pathways and in these connections. And so having the right amount, it's the Goldilocks principle, the right amount of dopamine is really important in order to reduce symptoms, but also not get you to a level of inattention, which is too little dopamine in many cases. That kind of answers your question. That perfectly answers yeah. my question. Thank you very much. Yeah. So we are going to actually take a quick break, but when we come back, Jason's going to tell us about how rats are helping us find a cure for schizophrenia in a new segment we like to call What's Good. Chuck, can I tell you something? What? I don't really like video games. I hate video games, do, do actually. You hate I video? do. You want to know something else I don't like? What? I don't really like comic books that much. As a whole? Well, you know, I'm starting to like those things a little more. But you know who's making me like those things a lot more than I used to? Who could that be? <laughs> Brian Carr. Oh, my God. He makes me like everything more, <laughs> really. Brian Carr of the podcast Serious Fun yeah. out of Phoenix Studios. Brian covers topics from video game design, comic books, superheroes, and other sorts of pop culture phenomena. Brian is a UW-Green Bay communications and information science prof whose podcast, as he describes it, is a journey into the frivolous. He talks to people who interpret and create pop culture and says, whether it's comic books, video games, or reality TV, Serious Fun examines the media that shapes and reflect our lives. He also collects action figures. He does collect action figures, and he even had us on his show, so you know that means he's got good taste. Oh, totally. High standards. Otherwise, nobody would have been there. <laughs> right. I mean, please. Yeah, or maybe it's good taste and low standards. Yeah, but. okay. You can find Serious Fun and other great Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu slash podcasts. All right, we are back. So, Jason, tell me, what's good? Yeah, what's good actually directly stems from what we were just talking about, that the usual way to treat schizophrenia is to give an antipsychotic and potentially some level of an SSRI, something that has to do with serotonin. Now, it might be changing. 
Okay, a study that was published actually last week in Nature Neuroscience is starting to take animal translational models. So uh, I'll give the caveat that we always have to give when we're talking about animal models of the human brain, which is we can't replicate schizophrenia in an animal. It's a, it's a very hard replication to make. You can get at some of the behavioral symptoms and potentially some of the cognitive symptoms by inducing this with certain gene mutations. Uh, and this is what a group did. They created a variant kind of like schizophrenia in a rat. And one of the key things in, in recent years uh, that Ali touched on before was that this desynchronization of firing of neurons within the hippocampus that seems to happen in schizophrenia, meaning they're not firing in, t in the right timing with each other. So some researchers over at, uh, I believe it was the University of Geneva, ended up trying to reset the timing firing that was going on within the hippocampal, uh, a specific set of hippocampal neurons in the rat. And they were able, with uh, a pharmaceutical intervention, to reset the firing, to start more inhibition, uh, inhibitory signals happening from the hippocampus, which ended up yielding um, the timing to start to correct within the neural networks that are processing aspects like dopamine. And it seemed to get rid of many of the symptoms, uh, particularly some of the positive symptoms of schizophrenia that were happening there, and the disorganization, which was one of the keys. So uh, I liked the, the researcher's best way of saying this was that uh, in a state that was really chaotic, it created a sense of order. Now, it's really preliminary. It'll be decades before this is probably brought into human models, but it's that first hint that the good news is there might actually be ways to start to interfere with the neural networks that are yielding some of these schizophrenic behaviors. That is good. Thank you very much, Jason. So before we go, anything else I missed? Anything else you want to talk about? Anything to plug? No, I think no. we're good. Right. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you both. Allie, when do you graduate? Ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe May of 2020. Okay. Very cool. So, well, thank you very much for coming on. It's always it's super cool to have students on the show talking about their work, uh, which is great. That is, you know, I have something to plug, actually. Once again, I really want people to come to this live episode we're doing at the Widener Center. Jason, you're going to be there. We're going to be talking about scary movies. Lots of fear. We're going to talk lots about yeah. fear. <laughs> this is actually part of a, a, a theme episode or a series of episodes uh, of different shows related to the play Frankenstein, which is going yeah. to be at the Widener Center. Um, on All the Rage, we're going to be talking about uh, mob violence. Uh, in the show, we're going to be talking about horror. Um, what are, I can't remember what the other topics are uh, for the other shows, but it's going to be super rad. We had a production meeting yesterday, and I'm really excited. So come to that. Again, I'm going to tell you when it is October 17th, 6 o'clock at the Widener Center. Uh, it's going to be great. So. Um, and that does it for this episode. I've got some people I want to thank in addition to our wonderful guest today. Thank you, Dr. Jason Cowell. Thank you, Allie Klein. Um, I want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, our podcast artist, Kimberly DeVlees, and our fabulous brand new intern, Shayla Warren, who does all the things to keep this show great. That's it. Until next time, keep being amazing.